BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview, Great Falls, offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Hey guys, ready or not, 2024 is here, and we here at Breaking Points are already thinking of ways we can up our game for this critical election. We rely on our premium subs to expand coverage, upgrade the studio, add staff, give you guys the best independent coverage that is possible. If you like what we're all about, it means the absolute world to have your support. What are you waiting for? Become a premium subscriber today at breakingpoints.com. everybody. Happy Thursday. We have an amazing show for everybody today. What do we have, Crystal? Indeed we do. A lot of big stuff actually happening here domestically. So first of all, we have the very latest on that utter betrayal of uh, President, big, you know, union guy Joe Biden, who is now a union buster, strike breaker, all of the rest. Uh, So some legislative action there. We will break that down for you. We also have new indications from the Fed on exactly what they are doing. Markets are happy, but uh, those who are in wages may not be. We also have... (laughs) More moves with regards to Twitter, European (laughs) regulators indicating they may crack down, may block the app if uh, they don't change what they are doing and how they are approaching things under Elon Musk. We also have uh, gay marriage now codified, passed through the Senate. We've got the details of which Republicans voted for it and which ones did not. So that's also very interesting. And we have some new inside details about the now infamous meeting with Trump and Kanye West and uh, Milo Yiannopoulos and Nick Fuentes and questions over whether this may have been all a setup, which is pretty interesting to get to. And then we had to add this into the show. This was crazy. Uh, Sam Bankman-Fried sat for an hour-long interview Mm -hmm. uh, with the New York Times' Andrew Ross Sorkin. Uh, He got asked about everything. (laughs) How much money do you have left? Hey, what happened? Were you lying? How much money did you steal? All of the rest. So we have that for you as well that we added into the show last minute. We also have Ross Barkin back to talk about um, moves that Mayor Eric Adams is making to have police involuntarily commit more uh, mentally ill homeless people. Obviously, that is extraordinary controversial. So all of that is in the show. But before we get to that, 
Live show. Live show. Put it up there on the screen. New York and Boston. Six Next week, guys. December this is coming 6th, down to the wire. December 7th. Uh, go ahead and buy tickets, guys. It's going to be a hell of a lot of fun. We've got a fun show planned for all of you. We've got the meet and greet with the VIPs uh, for our lifetime members who we will be reimbursing the tickets just as a reminder to all of them. And I just want to say thank you again to everybody who's bought tickets so far. If you can, we would really like to have a sold out show and it'll be a hell of a lot of fun. So links down there in the description. With that, let's get to the real stuff. And by the way, guys, this is is, uh, these are the last dates we have on the calendar yeah, for a while. That's right. So, um, you know, we're, we've been excited. It's been fun doing these live shows. Super excited, excited to come back to New York uh, and to come to Boston for the first time. So if you're able to join us, we would absolutely love that. All right. Let's get to the rail strike uh, that the Biden administration is attempting to avert. We've had legislative action now in the House. And there were a couple of things that happened here. So, I've gone through the backstory here 15 different times, but essentially uh, railway labor relations are governed by a separate set of law that enables Congress to intervene and cram down whatever deal they want on labor and on the rail industry. So you had a tentative deal that was put forward by uh, the Biden administration working with the railroad uh, bosses and also with the union leaders. And you had a significant percentage of workers, rank and file, workers who looked at that deal saw that they were only getting one paid sick <laughs> paid day of sick leave which is insane and said no this is not good enough well the Biden administration Joe Biden himself came in and said okay well we don't care I'm going to ask Congress to go ahead and force this deal on you even though many of you voted this down Nancy Pelosi jumping right in and going along with it but you had two things that were interesting that happened that uh, made things a little bit more complicated. You had progressives led by Jamal Bowman saying, this is unacceptable. We must also pass paid sick leave, Bernie Sanders leading that side on the Senate. And you also, and I think this mattered uh, in terms of how this is all going down, you also had a few Republicans led by Marco Rubio also saying mm -hmm. this is unfair to workers. So sort of putting some pressure on Democrats to cut a better deal for workers than what was in that original tentative agreement. So- Instead of doing what would have made all the sense in the world, which is to just add some paid sick days into the tentative agreement, they decided to do this complicated thing of having one vote on the tentative agreement as it stands and a separate vote on adding seven paid sick days into the deal. So that has now passed the House. Let's go ahead and put this uh, up on the screen. The headline here is House Votes to Avert Rail Strike, Impose Deal on Unions. Um, you have statements here from the uh, railroad, like the Corporate Association. They say, unless Congress wants to become the de facto endgame for future negotiations, any effort to put its thumb on the bargaining scale to artificially advantage either party or otherwise obstruct a swift resolution would be wholly irresponsible. So they're pissed off about the paid sick leave vote that occurred as well. And also, passed, although by a more narrow margin. On the other hand, you have uh, the Labor Coalition. They are also upset. Um, they say that they praised the vote to add sick time. They told lawmakers who voted against it that they had, quote, abandoned your working class constituents. Uh, just as a reminder here, as things stand right now, most rail workers do not get any, any paid sick time. And this whole thing, just to put it in context and step back for a second, this whole thing is because the railroad bosses do not want to cut even a percentage point into their extraordinary profit margins to make sure that their workers, when they get sick, can take a little bit of time off. That's it. That's what the whole thing is about. And at this point, 
Biden is basically having his, you know, Patco moment. Uh, air traffic controllers famously back Reagan busted that strike. He is having a very similar moment here and attempting to bust this potential railroad worker strike, taking away all of their leverage after they've been through all of the paces and siding at the end of the day. Oh, he wrings his hands and he's reluctant, but at the end of the day, he has sided with the railroad bosses here. In terms of who voted what way, let's go ahead and put this more perfect union tweet up on the screen. They say breaking House passes legislation guaranteeing seven days of paid sick leave as part of a mandated rail labor agreement. The vote was 221 to 207. All of the Democrats backed the measure. Okay, that's good. All Republicans opposed it except for three. The Senate is expected to vote on the rail labor contract tomorrow. Uh, We are actually not sure exactly when the Senate is expected to take up these two pieces. But Sagar, it seems pretty clear here that, you know, the bottom line is the administration, Biden administration, really didn't care about the paid sick leave. All they really care about is cramming down this uh, core tentative agreement. And so by keeping these two votes divided makes it very possible, if not likely, that in the Senate, you get the tentative agreement passed and the paid sick leave, which is the part that's really important to workers, go down, goes down in flames. Yeah, ironically, and we'll get to this, it may be the Republicans who sink the deal. Uh, and uh, I'll talk about more about their political motivations later on. But I actually think it's very, again, important to understand something I laid out before. The seven railway companies had a combined net income of $27 billion. That is up from $15 billion a decade earlier. Over the past decade, six of the seven publicly traded railway stocks have paid out $146 billion in stock buybacks and dividends, $30 billion more in cash than they invested in their own businesses. On top of that, their stock is up by 300% in the last uh, decade. On top of that, they've actually shrunk their workforce, which is part of the reason why these guys are being worked so hard um, on the railroads. And they did not negotiate their deal in good faith with the government because, and I think it's becoming very clear, Crystal, the rail companies basically told Biden, they're like, this is as far as we're going to go. And Biden was like, okay, well, if the unions don't go for it, I'll just force Congress to ram it down their throats. And that appears to be exactly what's happening. I also am seeing a lot of media malpractice in this story. There is oh, absolutely- From the no, beginning. There's really no coverage about the demands. You know, I've even spoken pr- privately with some people and they're like, well, why are these guys going on strike in the first place? And I'll explain. I'll be like, they don't have any paid sick time. They work like 30 days on when if they get even a cold, like they can't take any time off and they don't get paid. And they're like, oh, that sounds kind of crazy. I was like, yeah, you think? Right, (laughs) right. And this is their basically only shot to improve that deal. I mean, I can tell you what's going to happen. Like, this deal, if if what we expect to happen ultimately happens and the tentative agreement is crammed down their throat, um, there is some talk online of an, a wildcat strike, um, of going ahead with the strike, even though, you know, it would be technically illegal. More likely what's going to happen is you just have a mass exodus of Good. workers. And, yeah. and the railroads—and and this is where— You know, this is about so much more than just what these individual workers deserve, even though that is such an important part of it that we never want to lose sight of, because it also is kind of a seminal moment in labor history. You have this burgeoning grassroots labor movement. These things are very dependent on momentum. They're very dependent on the the mood and the tone that is struck from the the very top. We saw what happened with Ronald Reagan back in the day when he uh, broke that air traffic controller strike. That really put a chill through the labor movement 
for decades. And especially because transit workers are so visible and so central to the economy, these things can really, really set the tone. So you got this dude who claims to be, oh, I'm going to be the most pro-union president in history. And listen, I have given him a lot of credit for some of the personnel he's put in place in particular that has, in fact, enabled this grassroots labor movement. Now, on the other hand, he, you know, the pro acts, he floated it, he dropped it almost immediately, didn't really fight for it. He had workers to the White House as this sort of like virtue signal deal with Christian Smalls of Amazon Labor Union, but he never actually used the power of his office to do what he said he would do, which is to deny federal contracts to any union buster. So he's fallen short every step of the way, let's be really clear. But this is an extraordinary betrayal. And it's not just railroad workers who are taking notice. And that's why this is so extraordinarily significant. On that betrayal, just to underscore it here, Jonah Furman, who of course has been a a phenomenal labor reporter and has been tracking this uh, from the very beginning. If you don't follow, make sure that you do. He says, after the House votes to include seven paid sick days for rail workers, the White House comes out with a statement that doesn't even mention those paid sick days. So they were given another chance to support paid sick days for rail workers, and Biden clearly chooses not to. Let me read a little bit of Biden's statement because this was kind of revealing. He said in part in this latest statement, without the certainty of a final vote to avoid a shutdown this week, railroads will begin to halt the movement of critical materials like chemicals to clean our drinking water as soon as this weekend. Let me say that again, without action this week, disruptions to our auto supply chains, our ability to move food to tables and our ability to remove hazardous waste from gasoline refineries will begin. So there's two things to note there. Number one, he's not talking about the needs of the workers. He's talking about the potential economic threat. So he's focused on like, oh, you can't have this disruption of a potential strike. So that is a very corporate friendly narrative that he's putting up there. Um, Number two, as Jonah says, doesn't even mention the paid sick leave that just passed through the House. He could be urging the Senate to pass that as well. And I said there were two things. There's actually a third thing, which is that he says without the certainty of the final vote, railroads will begin to halt the movement of critical materials. So that's actually the way he says that. It's not actually a strike action he's worried about. He's worried about a lockout, Mm -hmm. which is what we saw last time around when before the deadline actually came up, the railroad bosses decided to scale back their activity as a sort of an economic threat to heighten their own leverage. So a lot that's very revealing. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think this is about political motivation more than anything, which is he doesn't believe that there is any real benefit to standing with the workforce more so than here. Look, let's also be honest. If this happens, gas price will probably go up by two or three dollars a gallon out west. An extraordinary amount of their gas comes by a railway on on top of goods. There's a lot of other uh, perishable goods and other things that also move by rail. And so they're like, well, the economic disruption that would cause political problems for us is just simply not worth it. But look, you have the authority to force a deal. Like you can force actually whatever deal deal you want. You could endorse that. And they're just choosing not to do it, Crystal. I think that is, again, if the media had done a better job of explaining this to people, I don't think that they would really comprehend how like little the demand on the railway workers actually are and the extent to which the rail companies are willing to effectively crash the economy if they want to 
just to keep on their grubby profits and continue stock buybacks. There's not even any provision in the yeah. deal, which Congress would happily do. Be like, okay, well, we'll accept this deal, but then you can't buy it back. No more stock any buybacks. Of they don't even put that in there. Yeah. We even put that in the COVID bailout. Like, not way, even in this one. Stock buybacks used to be illegal, and yeah. they should be illegal again, yeah. because it really is just like financial fakery and rigging and more profits to the, the people who don't need it, to the very, very rich and executive class. Um, and this also, you know, if this deal without the paid sick leave goes through, this is very likely to have deleterious impacts on the rail freight industry because already through the poor business decision-making of the rail bosses, already they are stretched extraordinarily extraordinarily thin. And this was a trend that started before the COVID pandemic. Then the pandemic exacerbates everything. They've lost so much of, they've laid off so much of their workforce. And then when they say, hey guys, come back. Well, guess what? People have moved on and they aren't too excited to go back to an industry where they get zero paid <laughs> sick leave. So you're likely to see a continued exodus. They're very likely to continue to struggle to fill those holes. And so ultimately, you know, what have we experienced in terms of the inflation and the supply chain disruptions? Like when we down the road a year from now are saying, geez, why, why isn't this working well? Remember this moment right here where these bosses were so greedy that they wouldn't even agree to give their workers a few days of paid sick leave. And, uh, you know, the workers, many of whom voted for Joe Biden, some of whom didn't, but many of whom did feel extraordinarily betrayed. Credit to the New York Times for actually talking to a few workers about this. Let's go ahead and put this up on the screen. Uh, they highlight one uh, legislative representative for his local union, a guy named Gabe Christensen, a longtime freight railroad conductor. He worked hard to help elect Joe Biden for uh, as president in 2020. He says, yeah, I have shirts from me campaigning, blue collar Biden shirts. I knocked on door for doors for him for weeks and weeks and weeks. But since Monday, when President Biden urged Congress to impose a labor agreement that his union had voted down, Mr. Christensen has been besieged by text from Fury's co-workers whom he had encouraged to support the president. I am trying to calm them down, he said. Um, you know, it's just heartbreaking to think of what sense of betrayal these workers are facing right now. And they also quote uh, someone else who works for the railroads who says exactly what we were talking about. You're likely to see an exodus. He says it's going to be like having a strike without having a strike because you're going to have so many workers ultimately leave this industry. And, you know, rail freight is incredibly critical to everything we do in this country. So if you have a massive labor shortage there, it's going to be a big problem. And Sagar, I think in a lot of ways with Biden, the original sin was the presidential board that he put together. That was like the first step in this process. So he gets together this group. They negotiate amongst themselves. They come out with this potential deal that did not, that sided with the bosses like 100%, did not even expand a single day of paid sick leave. And so that was the starting point. I mean, these workers have been saying the whole time, this really isn't about wages. Of course, more wages are nice, but this is about standard quality of living. This is about standard of living concerns and specifically around paid sick leave. And so his original board doesn't even deal with that issue at all. And I really think from there, 
that's where things start going sideways in terms of these workers' demands. No, I think you're right. And I think what's very important, again, to understand on this is that these guys did not negotiate in good faith. I just don't think any of us could expect that this outcome would have happened if the Railway Labor Act didn't exist. And that's the point, which is, actually, I'll get to this and I'm talking about the Republicans, but I think there's an important, like, almost quasi-libertarian aspect to this. We're like, hold on a second. Like, you have a democratic, non-governmental institution, the union, of the actual workers themselves who are like, this is not going to work for us. And then the government just gets to come in and say, no, actually, that's not it. Like, since when do they get to set the basic conditions of your employment? Like, in a free market capitalist system, at least the way we have it, we're supposed to set the floor and then everybody can go do whatever they want from there. Like, this takes freedom really out of the equation in terms of the ability for you and collectively to determine the conditions of your own working. I think it's actually really crazy. Yeah, well, and they kind of want to have it both ways with the Railway Labor Act, and that's the, you know, the law that governs how all of this has ultimately unfolded and that gives Congress the authority to cram down whatever deal on workers that they ultimately want, um, because that recognizes, yeah, rail is really critical to our economy. Mm -hmm. So that's why they put this in place ultimately to, you know, avoid the economic fallout. But if you're recognizing it's so critical to the economy, you can't also then just leave it up to the whims of whatever is going to make the most money for this handful of railroad bosses. So I I think that is a really important piece of this. Uh, Let's get to what's going to happen next in the Senate, which is... um, it's pretty up in the air as to how this is all ultimately going to go down. Uh, Bernie Sanders has been leading the charge to add paid sick days uh, to this in the Senate. Let's take a listen to what he had to say to Chris Hayes. Put up or shut up. If you can't vote for this to give workers today who really have hard jobs, dangerous jobs, if you can't give them, you can't guarantee them paid sick leave, don't tell anybody that you stand with working families. So again, I think it really sucks that they separated these two pieces out, that you have separate votes on the uh, tentative agreement and then on the paid sick leave. It should have been put into one and, you know, have that put up or shut up moment. Um, But, you know, as it stands, those two votes are separate. So it's pretty clear the tentative agreement, that piece will go through. Uh, in the House, of course, you had, you know, all the de- almost all the Democrats and uh, some Republicans also voting for that. The paid sick leave passed by a much more narrow margin. You Part of this story, though, is you had progressives agitating from one side, and like I said, Jamal Bowman and Bernie Sanders really leading the charge there. But I think also what put Democrats, uh, put some pressure on them to at least have this, what may end up being a show vote on paid sick leave, is that you did have a few Republican senators in particular who made some noise about this being unfair to workers. So you have basically Marco Rubio, I think, was the first out to get to the left of Joe Biden (laughs) on uh, labor relations, which is just pathetic. Uh, He says here the railways and workers should go back and negotiate a deal that the workers, not just the union bosses, will accept. But if Congress is forced to do it, I will not vote to impose a deal that does not have the support of rail workers. Okay, Uh, that's interesting. Then you have Politico reporter uh, Burgess Everett here reporting on what Minority Whip John Thune said. This is just underscoring the uncertainty of how this will all go. He says, I don't know at this point where the votes are on either the base agreement or the paid leave piece. Josh Hawley eventually came out and uh, also sort of getting to the left of Joe Biden on this particular labor issue. Let's go ahead and put this next piece up on the screen. He says he will vote in favor of the seven days of paid sick leave for real workers, but does not support the underlying bill. And he put out his own tweet. Let's go ahead and put this up on the screen. He says... 
Mr. Pro-Worker Joe Biden wants to use the federal government to force railroad workers in Missouri, which of course the state Josh Hawley represents, and around the nation to accept contract terms they rejected, not with my support. And finally, we also had Ted Cruz making some noise here saying that Congress should not crush unions with the rail deal as he makes the case the GOP should ditch the, quote, old National Chamber of Commerce Republican mindset that if unions won it, we're against it. We are the party of working men and women. So you at least have three here who seem to indicate they'll vote for the paid sick leave. I mean, Ted Cruz... We'll see. That's a lot more ambiguous. That's surprising to, want, to me. I, mean, I agree. I, but I, I, I've been thinking about it. I really think there is like almost a libertarian aspect to this where you're like, how can you have the government force you to accept a deal that you don't want to, which is not illegal? Like this is right. outside of minimum, you know, like a, somebody's not being paid wages. Like they're outright bigfooting you and being like, no, what you want is trumped by national interest. So it's like, okay, then pay us. Yeah. Like if you want that, then the, okay, then the Fed should pony it up or they should uh, come to some ad- agreement there. Yeah. I, I really believe that this is a potent and interesting one. I also do want to say it's savvy move because you both get to be pro-labor and also if it doesn't pass and the economy is bad and it's going to be bad for Joe Biden. Right. So well, it's one I mean, of those that's things. The other, that's the other part of this yeah. is there's clearly like, there's a part and motivation here. There's no yeah. doubt about it. I mean, it. I'm of two yeah. right. I'm of two minds about it. First of all, we do have to note in the modern era, in my entire life, to have a national Republican figure saying anything that is remotely pro-labor, yeah. siding with labor in any way, is an extraordinary event. I mean, it just hasn't happened. And even Previously, remember Marco Rubio put out that op-ed about Amazon. the Amazon down in Bessemer, the Union Drive, and it was very like, in this one limited instance, maybe I support the workers because of the woke HR department and uh-huh. made it very specific to like the Amazon executives. But this is more broad. Um, and look, they're, they have these three have taken a better position on this issue than Joe Biden, Mr. Pro-Worker, as Josh Hawley says. And I do think the fact that they came out so quickly is part of why we're even having a vote on paid sick leave. So that matters. Just keep in mind, though, that in the House, uh, every Democrat voted for the paid sick leave and three Republicans voted for it. So before we get ahead of ourselves in terms of like a new era in the Republican Party or whatever, but, you know, these these little things do make a difference and help to shift what is possible. If you had a bipartisan pro-labor coalition, my God, that would be an extraordinary thing in America. If I was a Republican, like I said, politically savvy, I would want the economy to be bad under Biden. I'm not saying this is moral, but I'm saying that this is what politically that you would want to do. And also, you get to say like, well, I'm standing with the workforce. What are you doing? We have to Put yourself on a bad side of politics. Unions are more popular than ever in the year 2022. So, look, I mean, my thing is, is you take cynicism and you just take it where you can get it. And it's, I don't Why, care. Right, it's a cynical it's move, but they ended up in the right place, so whatever. I'm hoping that they do crush the deal because, I mean, from what I have heard, there have been ongoing discussions on the uh, GOP caucus side. And part of the reason that John Thune is out there is because, look, if they had only three people who were dissenting, then they yeah. would come out and they would have had the vote last night. They held the floor open actually quite late. They were not able to get to closure. Now there's a lot of bargaining and all that going on right now. So maybe there is a secret not even a caucus, maybe there is a sizable contingent of the GOP which is coming out and be like, hmm, you know, politically, it is not so bad for us. Also, as far as I know, I have not seen McConnell make a major statement on this yet. I also did reach out to the Trump campaign to ask uh, for a position on this. We haven't heard anything yet. So I'm also curious, like, if I were Trump, this is one of those things that I would come out um, to and to try and make a too right, he's busy, too in, like, enmeshed in retweeting stop the like QAnon nonsense. Right. But if <laughs> I were him, Nick Fuentes, <laughs> this would be a very, very savvy move on yeah, his part too. Yeah, a 2016 Trump, 
He would do it. He would do it. This dude I he today, he's, yeah. he's lost, I don't know. He's lost the plot on basically everything. But um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's an interesting moment. I guess the other thing that I just want to point out is in terms of the House— I think the right move for progressives who wanted to force uh, the the hand of the White House and really make a statement here and be as pro-labor as possible would have been to vote down, to vote against mm-hmm. the uh, tentative agreement. Now, I think even without them, it probably still would have passed. But the correct move was to vote down that agreement and vote for the paid sick leave. If you had progressives in the Senate who were staking out that position of like, we are not going to vote for the tentative agreement, we will vote for the paid sick leave— possibly you could have enough votes against the tentative agreement to actually vote it down. But since uh, the Democrats have almost all decided just to go along with the Biden administration on the tentative agreement and then, you know, go for this separate vote on the paid sick leave, which is probably doomed to fail, I think that's very unlikely to happen. So the way things stand this morning, it looks very much like uh, these workers are going to end up getting the short end of the stick, getting screwed over once again, betrayed by the very man who claimed that he was going to be their champion. Uh, it's a sad state of affairs. It will have reverberating impacts across the labor movement. It will have reverberating impacts across our supply chain uh, and the rail industry for years to come. And um, it's not, did not have to be this way, did not have to be this way whatsoever. Biden had many other choices. If he wanted to take the moderate position. He could have, you know, gone for the deal, but added the paid sick leave in. That would have been a totally, a much more better state, a much better state of affairs than what we're ultimately likely to end up with here. Very true. All right, more economic news for you because we did get some comments from Jerome Powell about exactly what the Fed is likely to do the next time that they meet. Let's go ahead and put this up on the screen. Uh, Jerome Powell, Federal Reserve Chair, says that they could slow rate hikes at the next meeting. So we're looking then at a 0.5% increase versus the 0.75% increase that we have been um, looking at in previous months. You know, this has been an extraordinary period of uh, fiscal tightening to try to get inflation under control. Uh, And there are some disturbing comments here from Powell that I will get into for a moment. But basically what he says is the time for moderating the pace of rate increases may come as soon as the December meeting. That meeting happens December 13th and 14th, so it's just around the corner. Um, Still, he said that ongoing increases will be appropriate and that what matters most is the level rates ultimately rise to and how long they remain elevated rather than the rate of change. Uh, The stock market loved these comments. Uh, Exultant, you might say, (laughs) upon the news. Let's go ahead and put this up on the screen. This is from yesterday. The Dow jumped uh, 700 points (laughs) after Powell signals smaller rate hikes. So they are hoping that this will be the end of the super aggressive hikes, although, you know, 0.5% is still significant. And what really bothered me, though, Sagar, about his comments yesterday is he continues to talk about how we've basically got to crush workers' wages and Mm -hmm. spike unemployment to get inflation under control. Let's go ahead and put this up on the screen as part of his comments he uh, Powell cites a top barrier to taming inflation, workers' wages— So he says, to be clear, strong wage growth is a good thing, but for wage growth to be sustainable, uh, that will require reducing demand for labor by slowing the economy. So that's Fed speak for saying that uh, we haven't done enough to screw workers yet, and we are going to continue on that path until we see workers in more pain and suffering than they're already in. Yeah, it's a complicated one, because on the one hand, uh, we are looking at this, and we're very clearly seeing that a major recession is very much possible. And even major business leaders, I actually saw Elon Musk uh, yesterday 
yesterday tweeting that. He go, he's like, I don't understand what the Fed is doing. He's like, I think they're going to trigger a major recession. And a lot of big business leaders, a lot of business environmental decisions are all starting to make sense. You are watching like Google cut jobs for the first time ever. Amazon even, not even going as big as normal in the holiday season. Facebook, Meta, you know, so at the major tech company level, but also even in industry. So while wages not necessarily have gone down um, as much as Mr. Powell would like, like new hiring, new investment, and all of that is really bad. Finally, we cannot ignore the housing market. The yes. housing market is such a catastrophe. I was reading Annie Lowry at The Atlantic wrote a piece uh, yesterday, which was like eight reasons why buying a home right now is the worst time ever. It is yeah. genuinely the worst time in almost 40 years wow. to buy a new house. It's like 8% interest rate, but also nobody is willing to sell their house right now and then buy a new one. So housing inventory is at an all-time low. Then you also have the fact that the price has not dropped commiserate to the rise of interest rate. And everybody's because like, everybody's staying in their homes. Everybody's yeah. like, oh, but it, it'll drop eventually. Will it? I, I'm not so sure. I, I don't actually know if that's true. I don't and think so. Even if it does drop by, let's say, 10%, that's still not enough to make up for the increase in your overall mortgage payment, which has gone up by, let's say, 100%. So yeah. you're still getting 90% screwed on that transaction. <laughs> like There is so much that is happening at the uh, housing level in turmoil for our society that I don't see, it's like a, a mess of glue. I don't know how we're gonna get out of this yeah. um, in the next decade or so. I really I really don't. And eventually like something will give, but that will be a hell of, a, I think it could be more chaotic than 2008. I keep saying yeah. housing is such a sleeper issue. It is, Because it yeah. is so central to, yeah. I mean, it's so central to our economy. That's why, I mean, the Fed has explicitly targeted the housing market. They wanted the mortgage rates to, come up, to go up. They wanted the housing market to ultimately cool, but it is a worst of all worlds because on the one hand, you know, if you are a homeowner, you're, you're, uh, you know, you're not in a good situation because you can't leave if you wanted to move. Um, and meanwhile, if you want to buy in, obviously it's a complete disaster because prices haven't come down at all and mortgage rates going up means it is wildly unaffordable. And it's also not so, not only so critical for the uh, economy as a whole, obviously it is for that, but it's also so critical for people's sense of self, for our conception as a nation. Home ownership is the predominant way that people build wealth in this country, and it has just been put out of reach practically for two generations now. So I really think this is going to be central to our politics uh, for the foreseeable future. But yeah, I mean, you continue to have Powell making these noises about basically like workers have it too good. And I just want to say this is completely bunk workers' wages overall have not kept up with inflation. Mm -hmm. The idea that it's workers that are the problem here, that they're the ones that are, you know, they're getting higher pay increases and that's what's triggering inflation, that is just wildly, wildly incorrect. In fact, um, we have a tear sheet I'm going to show you later. Corporate profits are at an all-time high. So even as, you know, you've had the markets down and you've had inflation and all of this, they continue to reap more and more profits. Why? Because they're taking advantage of their oftentimes monopolistic position. They're taking advantage of the expectations that consumers have that prices are going to go up and up to gouge consumers and to continue to contribute to inflation. Yep. Um, there are signs, though, that you know we may have seen the, the sort of peak in terms of inflation, not just here, but there are actually some encouraging signs around the world as well that I wanted to bring to you guys. And it's a big question mark where we ultimately go from here. Um, the economists are saying it's very, very uncertain, and I think we should all be very 
cautious in any kind of predictions, but Eurozone inflation actually eased in November. Let's put this up on the screen. Uh, they say further rate rises are still likely. The annual rate of inflation in the Eurozone fell in November for the first time since mid-2021 as energy prices dropped. So that means that while prices continue to rise rapidly, they're no longer rising as rapidly mm-hmm. <laughs> as they were. Um, that's a long way from inflation being under control or price stabilizing, doesn't guarantee the inflation rate won't pick up again, but at least we're seeing an easing of the pace of rising inflation. Um, they also go on to talk about, and this is this is really interesting to me and gets to some a point we've been making, which is that the toolkit of the Fed and other central banks is not really well-suited to deal with the economic problems that we have right now. The reason they say inflation rates around the Eurozone have been coming down has nothing to do with central bank activity. Instead, it's been heavily influenced by government measures to protect households from surging energy prices. So for example, in November, the Netherlands saw the largest fall in their annual rate of inflation, which plummeted to 11.2% as government caps on energy prices came into effect. So it's not their central bank that is really causing the slowdown in inflation. It's government legislative policy, which is what we have always said here is the toolkit you really need to deploy if you want to ease uh, price pressures and make things easier for consumers. Yeah, exactly. This is why even discussing inflation is so important. What inflation, what's contributing to it, and all of that. Let's put this next one up there on the screen, which is part of the reason why it feels like things are getting better here is gas. So much of inflation and the way that we experience it and discuss it in America is gas prices. Right now, gas prices are continuing to fall. It's $3.47 a gallon on the national. And actually, California, for the very first time this morning in a long time, has dropped to $4.00 and 90 cents a gallon. I'm not going to cheer that. It's better than $6 a gallon than what it was earlier. The reason why that matters is just a year ago, we are almost normalizing to pre-Russian invasion levels of Ukraine. A year ago, it was $3.38. Now, that was higher for the national average than uh, when Biden took office. It was actually a pretty precipitous rise. But because of COVID and the boom and all of that, getting back to $3 gas would be a massive achievement oh, for yeah. the Biden. Well, not I wouldn't say achievement because I don't think they have that much to do with it. But it would be a massively uh, good Political thing win, yeah. politically for them um, because, especially on the heels of the midterm elections, to get back to three. Can you imagine if he's heading into uh, the uh, presidential election at $3 gas, or maybe even uh, lower, maybe $2.90, something like that? You should consider with regional di- differences, like that could even mean almost $2 gas in the state of Texas, and yeah. maybe $3.50 or something in California. If you do that, I mean, that's a tremendously beneficial, especially because people in their minds would remember where it all came to. So look, it's one of those things where actually politically and for normal consumers, Leaning on the central bank, not always the best choice. You really can use legislation to affect change and to uh, stop the amount that people are paying both at the pump and even at the supply chain level. There's a lot of stuff the Biden administration can and should have done. Right. And would have been, look, look at the midterms. Imagine if he had actually declared full-scale war on the supply chain crisis yeah. over a year and a half ago. Yeah. He would have bo- you could have kept the house. They could have kept the house. Easily. Yeah. I Easily. mean, that, that's the thing. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, they obviously wildly outperformed. Right. They bucked history, all of that. But it's still pathetic that you're like, this was a win. And you're like, but you just yeah, lost you just the, house. the house. Like, <laughs> and you lost the national popular And you lost the popular vote yeah. by two percentage points. Right. So, you know, and it was really based on the fact that they nominated a bunch of mm-hmm. really like out there people. And how long are you going to be able to rely on that? Meanwhile, any Republican who even had a semblance of, 
normality like the Brian Kemp's of the world um, romped to re-election. We'll put that aside for a minute. I mean, as one example of the type of action at the federal government level that matters in terms of inflation in the supply chain, like go back to the rail strike. You're going to have the freight rail industry hobbled by a loss of workers if they ultimately force this deal through. So it would be much better if we had a functioning government that was actually tackling the supply chain issues that have caused this situation, that we're actually going after the price gouging corporations that have caused this situation rather than just continuing to lead on the Fed. But, you know, economically, it's a very mixed picture right now. I think we are in a very, very uncertain time. There was another, this is sort of a technical thing, but there was another uh, technical indication that inflation may be slowing as well. Let's go ahead and put this up on the screen. They say the Fed is set to get some help in pausing as inflation gauge gap shrinks. Mm -hmm. So the difference between these two different price gauges, um, you can see uh, there's a chart here up on the screen. You've got like a yellowish orange (laughs) price gauge and you've got the like the black line price gauge and you see they mostly hang out together, but they've kind of split. And the idea is that the one that is continuing to be high is going to revert back down to closer to where the one that is lower, the black line is ultimately going to be. It's complicated, the reasons for this. They say that healthcare, housing weights uh, and impact will shift and reduce the gap. Uh, and the one that is set to sort of like uh, to, to lessen and paint a, a better picture of where we are with regards to inflation is the preferred index of the Fed. So again, it's a little bit technical, but basically the idea is there are some signs on the horizon that another one of the inflation gauges could be cooling as well. And finally, just to underscore something I mentioned earlier, while this is all going on, and supposedly, you know, corporations are being squeezed and they're just having to pass the the cost, additional costs onto consumers, and oh, they're so sorry about it. It's a bunch of nonsense. Their profits have never been higher. Put this up on the screen from the Hill. Corporate profits hit record high of $2.08 trillion in the non-financial sector in the third quarter, even as 40-year high inflation continues to squeeze American consumers. Um, and you've got uh, uh, an economist that they quote here, the chief economist of global wealth management at UBS, so no like anti-establishment figure here, saying the Fed should make clear that rising profit margins are spurring inflation. Um, and, you know, I think that's part that a lot of mainstream economists have been trying to downplay. The Biden administration has occasionally made some nods toward it, but, towards it, but really done nothing about it. And it's, it's disgraceful. It's another sign of how much monopolistic pricing power so many corporations have in our economy. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. The corporate profit angle on that, it's 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 weird. This whole economy, I don't think the, there's another word other than weird because it's like you have high inflation. Fake. Worker rises are going. <laughs> it's like <laughs> corporate profits are high, but the stock market is down, but people are getting laid off, but also wages are decent. So you're like, well, what's going on here? But also you can't afford food. So is it good? Is it bad? It's one of those where part of the reason that it, the Fed is reaching for this is because in their toolkit, in their very, very narrow view of the economy, this is why we should have interest rates. But when you look at like quality of life, living and more, it's very clear that that's not the instrument that you should be reaching for. You should be reaching legislatively. I'm not even ruling out some interest rates, but I'm saying the precipitous increase is clearly having a deleterious effect on the overall economy. Something that major business leaders and entrepreneurs are also saying. So at that point, you know, when even like the high institutions of business are like, hey, hold on a second, like what are you doing? It's like a horseshoe really for workers and for the people who actually do some of the employment. Very true. Very true. 
Twitter, speaking of Elon um, and what we discussed, this is probably one of the most significant actions that we've seen against Twitter yet and actually sets the tone for how a lot of this is going to go. Let's put this up there on the screen. Something that we forget is that our American social media companies are not really American. Uh, they are global companies. A huge portion, and in some cases, the majority of their user base is not even American. So the European Union is actually now turning up the heat on Elon Musk over Twitter. The EU commissioner actually warned Elon in a meeting that he must adhere to the rules of content moderation as consistent with their standards as decided by the European Union, or they will risk ban on the, within the entire EU. So here's the details. There was a conference call between Elon Musk and the EU commissioner in charge of digital rules. So they have kind of a manifesto within the EU, which is, and I always say this here, uh, much to the chagrin of the Europeans, they don't have freedom of speech. They don't have constitutions. Everything there is based upon precedent that can be easily taken away. It is not enshrined in the bedrock of like the Bill of Rights like we have here. They are very malleable as to what they uh, go for, even within their data privacy protections, which are some uh, limited way I do kind of support. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, their rules over content moderation, hate speech and all that is not consistent with any understanding of free speech that we would recognize here in the United States. Now, that means that Twitter and their content moderation standards have to abide by global, not just domestic regulation, or you'd have to live in some very weird environment where there's like a U.S. Twitter and a European Twitter, which kind of does exist, I guess, on some social media platforms. The point is, though, is that this is probably the most serious threat that we have seen yet. And it actually has been a longstanding concern for free speech advocates over U.S. tech companies is that the Europeans have very different standards and wants of what they have in their domestic society. So yeah. something that they- and they're allowed to. Oh, look, you can do whatever you want. Yeah. I, I, I mean, don't really they, care. Like they actually yeah. like pa- have legislation that regulates it in the way that they want it regulated. Yeah, I just don't like the way they regulate yeah. it. Yeah, uh, but that's for fine. Our country, We're not European. Uh, yeah. Like they're, you know, they're allowed yes. to have a different approach to it than what we have or what we think is ideal. Et cetera. And so Musk came in. He said he was going to abide by all relevant rules. And in particular, the problem that they're running into is um, your decisions over who is going to be banned are supposed to be transparent and consistent. And the like sort of chaotic, like, ah, I'm going to unban this one and I'm going to ban this one. And let's take a Twitter poll and see like what we're going to do with President Trump. That hardly matches up with the standards and regulations that, uh, you know, Europe has set for themselves. So I don't blame them for looking at that and being like, this does not uh, this does not work with what we have passed and with the consistent standards we're trying to apply across social media spaces. Yeah, I I will say, though, I mean, the idea that the previous Twitter regime was consistently enforcing regulation is, uh, let's just say BS, to say it kindly. And the fact is that the Euros actually liked that regime quite a bit. But they had a little Um, bit more of this, like, under wraps, though. I mean, that's honestly why I'm sort of enjoying the Elon regime is Mm. because it's really unmasked how capricious all this decision-making ultimately is. I agree with you, actually. That's true. Yeah, and yeah. so uh, you know, I mean, Tim they Cook's were more uh, they were more polite about yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's sort of like the difference. Like Trump, like rips the bandaid yes. of the decorum off, and you see like the brazen corruption, whenever, and you're like, well, this was a lot of it going on before. It just had a layer of civility and like niceness and sort of bureaucratic protocol around it. He now is just out in the open that it's chaotic, case by case, based on the whims of one billionaire. So. 
they no longer have plausible deniability, I guess is what I would ultimately right. say and here. And look, I still want them to release those Twitter files. That also comes on the heels of some important comments yesterday from Janet Yellen. Let's put this up there on the screen. The Treasury Secretary actually said she, quote, misspoke when she said that there was no basis for the government to review the Elon Musk Twitter buy because uh, people, I've spoken about this before, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, it's a part of the Treasury Department, CFIUS for short here in Washington speak, has the ability to, uh, ex- to scrutinize deals over a national security concern. Although, I am going to reiterate, if they go after Elon on a CFIUS complaint for Tesla's business dealings in China, of which I have uh, laid out major concerns about on the show, but they still allow TikTok US to operate, I'm gonna lose my mind, Crystal, because that will be one of the most inconsistent and lo- like obvious political retributions in modern history for the use of CFIUS. If they ban both, I'm good with it. Yeah. I, I'm totally cool with it. Yeah. That said, I have not seen any current indication that TikTok US is being par- properly scrutinized by CFIUS. And if anything, the uh, Biden administration is currently working on a potential deal with TikTok to actually circumvent CFIUS and reach some sort of fake operating agreement, which allows Chinese control over the app. So yeah. look, anyway, I support I mean, the CFIUS I think process. We have to say- but if it's used this way, that's bullshit. Isn't the yeah. thing they're concerned about with uh, Twitter specifically, though, the Saudi ownership is not the part that they're— Once again. We I don't mean, really know, right? It's on the Saudi ownership on this, do you, then Sifia should ban Uber. You know, Uber has mm-hmm. a larger Saudi stake in it than uh, Twitter. Uh, there, I, I can list off five public companies that all have massive Saudi investment from the Saudi royal whatever yeah. group. So, uh, listen, I actually Just support be consistent. Very, very stringent standards on foreign investment yeah. here in the United States. But it's not been consistently applied. So then if it's politically used in this way, I would have a major, major problem with that, especially given how many examples we can list off. Uh, actually, you know, Ken Klippenstein just did an entire thing about uh, Arizona water rights being sold. Yeah, you South. guys should That's check that the out. type of thing that should be uh, that banned on CFIUS. A crazy right. story. Everyone go watch it. It's on our channel. We posted it yesterday. This dude yeah. who is a, a lobbyist right. for Saudi Arabia just got uh, elected yeah, to like a critical crazy. board in Maricopa County that oversees water rights. And right. already, uh, yeah, the Saudi government is basically like buying up the water rights in the state of Arizona is a bad situation. So anyway, yeah, definitely go check that out. But yeah, I mean, I think asking for like across the board, consistent treatment is that's just like baseline what you should expect. Correct. Let's go to the next part. Elon actually said something very interesting of which I will personally be paying a lot of attention to. He was replying to a tweet where he says, the obvious reality as longtime users know is that Twitter has failed in trust and safety for a very long time and has, quote, interfered in elections. Twitter 2.0 will be far more effective, transparent, and even-handed. Now, I have a lot of questions about uh, what interfered in election means. There's a lot of different ways to read that. You could read it as colloquial, as uh, by banning the Hunter Biden laptop story, has implications under elections, uh, most likely. That's what he means. However, what I'm really interested in is DHS and specifically state government, uh, state government cooperation with Twitter's teams that we may not even know. Yeah. About. Um, what is banned? What is not? What is considered misinformation? After Ken's great scoop, which he broke and talked about here on our show the day of, the amount of cooperation happening between the national security agencies and the major social media companies on what's considered misinformation or not is far deeper than any of us even know. So. Uh, while I am very sympathetic to the argument about banning the Hunter Biden laptop story is election interference, I actually yeah. do think it's true. Uh, how you regulate and all of that is a major, much bigger question. It could go a lot deeper than that in terms of what the Twitter files could show us. I Look, 
it's probably ho- hopium on my part, but I would really like to see uh, what exactly that entails. Uh, yeah, same. It also comes on the heels of uh, a new blog post published by Twitter, which I think is very interesting because this has to remain consistent, again, what we talked about, with both European, U.S., and other country standards. Put it up there. He says, Twitter 2.0, our continued commitment to the public conversation. Twitter's mission is to promote and protect the public conversation, to be the town square of the internet. We have always understood to reach this goal, we must give everyone the power to create and share ideas and information instantly without barriers. Today, we are a new company embarking on a new chapter. Our steadfast commitment to that mission has not changed. We have always understood that our business and revenue are interconnected with our mission. Brand safety is only possible when human safety is the top priority. All of this remains true today. This is the interesting part. What has changed, however, is our approach to experimentation. As you have seen, Twitter is embracing public testing. We believe this will open and transparent approach to innovation is healthy. We believe that as a service of this importance, we will benefit from feedback at scale. We do this work to improve Twitter for our customers, partners, and the people who use it across the world. So the reason why this is important is it's trying to balance, Crystal, the free speech element. But when you continue to read, it's actually more of a read. Uh, it's more of a message to advertisers. It says, we want to assure you, none of our policies have changed. Our trust and safety team continues this diligent work to keep a platform safe from hateful conduct. When urgent events manifest on the platform, we ensure all 10 co- content moderators have the guidance they need to address violent, violative content. As we improve, bad actors will also develop new methods. They're like, we're working on this. Finally, we will make mistakes. We will learn. So I think this is both trying to balance the, as an official statement of company policy, Mm -hmm. free speech, but also to the advertisers being like, no, we do have some of this under control. I read fundamental tension. I read this also as a memo to European regulators because, like we were saying before, one of the things that the European regulators are apparently concerned about is the sort of haphazard approach to who's banned and who's unbanned. And so what he's trying to say here is like, nothing's really changed. Right. They do throw in this line. I thought this was the most significant line where they, they say, what has changed is our approach to experimentation. As you've seen, towards embracing public testing, we believe this open and transparent approach to innovation is healthy, blah, blah, blah. So they're trying to say like, oh, the Twitter polls and the various mm-hmm. things that we try, this is just a little bit of experimentation, but overall our policies are consistent with what you have allowed in the past European regulators was how I read that anyway. Yeah, I think you're, you're probably correct. There's also another interesting point that came out last night. Let's put it up there on the screen. There was a meeting between Tim Cook and Elon yesterday, Elon actually tweeted out a video of getting a tour of the Apple campus. He says, quote, good conversation amongst other things. We resolved the misunderstanding about Twitter potentially being removed from the App Store. Tim was very clear, Apple never considered mm-hmm. doing so. So a little personal diplomacy on the uh, on the part of Tim Cook. It's kind of interesting. You know, I talked previously about that book, Super Pumped, that I read. Tim was actually very involved and does actually get involved at the app store level with mm. major companies. He actually called Travis Kalanick in when he was the CEO of Uber to mm. have him explain himself on how Uber could remain on the platform. But clearly, uh, Tim Cook saw it as one of those things that has to be really nipped in the bud. I will say this about Tim Cook. As a diplomat, he is the one of the best to ever have really? a job. Oh, absolutely. There's a book I read 
blanking on the name. Uh, it's by a guy from the New York Times called like Apple after Steve Jobs. And mm. it talks, it's kind of a sad story because the point is that Apple really stopped innovating at the very highest level with new products, but they quadrupled their stock price and revenue because they started looking at it as a uh, platform, as a service on which you can continue to upsell customers and lock people into the ecosystem. Tim Cook is like that business manager, like squeezing value out of the value that's been created, but also as a diplomat, like his personal diplomacy with Xi Jinping, with Trump, he played Trump like a complete fiddle to make sure that Apple was not uh, impacted by any Chinese tariffs. And also, you know, at a business level, anytime he sees a potential threat to the brand, like yeah. about being for, uh, censorship and all that, he always skates in. Well, I'm disappointed by this outcome because personally, again, I found it useful. Uh, it is useful. being at, right. at war with Apple because remember, we had a great conversation yeah. about like, this Absolute is a monopoly. monopoly. That's why a monopoly is bad. And here's the exorbitant fees that they're charging mm-hmm. and like the sort of capricious decision making that's totally non-transparent. They put these companies through the paces and nobody should have this much control. So I'm a little disappointed at this resolution. Yeah. Personally, I liked the two of them being well, at war. At the point is, is that he's a good <laughs> diplomat because he doesn't want anybody he doesn't to want, know He doesn't uh, want to have that on. conversation. <laughs> (laughs) Does he? He didn't like those news stories, so he's found a way to move move beyond it. Correct. All right, let's move on now to the gay marriage vote, of which we previewed and talked about a lot here on Breaking Points. Uh, It actually happened, so let's put this up there on the screen. On Tuesday night, uh, 12 Senate Republicans joined the entire Democratic caucus to pass the Respect for Marriage Act, offering federal protections for same-sex and interracial marriages. So I actually wanted to make sure that we showed that, that the interracial part was included in the Respect for Marriage Act. The 12 Republicans who joined, we have their names there up on the right, uh, Roy Blunt, Richard Burr, Shelley Moore Capito, Susan Collins, Joni Ernst, Cynthia Loomis, Lisa Murkowski, Rob Portman, Mitt Romney, Dan Sullivan, Tom Tillis, and Todd Young from Indiana. What I find so interesting is how this is a real amalgam of a lot of different people. So you have mm. Indiana, actually a very conservative Catholic and uh, Protestant population there. Uh, Joni Ernst, also from Iowa, big Catholic population in Iowa. But also Cynthia Loomis. I mean, she has absolutely nothing to gain um, from this vote. Mitt Romney, representing the state of Utah. Uh, I mean, the Mormon church, had they were on kind of interesting sides um, on this issue. Also, Dan Sullivan um, from Alaska. Both I mean, the Alaska Utah, though, senators. is arguably the most conservative state in the entire country. Yeah, by some metrics. Yeah, it is the most conservative state in the entire country. And also, Shelley Moore Capito and Rich, well, Richard Burr is retiring, and so is Roy Blunt. So I think it might be a little bit different on their ends. It's not a surprise to see Susan Collins and Murkowski, but I do, I do think some of the names on here do kind of surprise me in terms of what they are going for and uh, whatnot. So I think, look, in general, part of the reason why uh, a lot of it matters is it shows you how much the country has changed. Let's put this on the screen about U.S. approval even. Of, uh, I can't even believe that this graph actually exists. Um, but it just does con- it does show you just how much social change can happen in a relatively short period of time. This is U.S. approval of marriage between black and whites from 1958 to 2021. So in 1958, the overall uh, wording on the question was 4% approval is now 94% today in 2021. Or sorry, in 2021, when the last time this was polled. On gay marriage, actually, you're now at overall nearly 70% approval, even with a majority of Republicans, including actually uh, even boomer Republicans who support gay marriage. So it's a it, it's a landmark moment for the country, which we're all kind of moving past because it does feel so far gone. But it just got passed through the U.S. Senate with almost no consternation, like no, uh, what, like demonstrations or anything. Everyone just kind of like, okay, great. And then they moved on, which in and of itself, if you had told me that in 1995, 
you know, if I'd been an adult then, I would have been like, wow, that's crazy. I would not have expected that. I mean, Ben Shapiro had some consternation. So there was there was some consternation out there. But yeah, yeah looking at that uh, graph of approval of marriage between black people and white people, when I was born, only 40% of Americans. That's pretty wild. That is yeah. crazy. That is crazy to me. And now, I mean, you know, 6% say no. Some, like, racist fringe freaks out there. But um, it is, it is in a way, a, like, disconcerting graph, but also hopeful in the, the pace of social change there. It is incredible to think back, uh, President Obama not supporting gay marriage. Yeah. I mean, actually, Biden kind of forcing his hand there in the second— that. that. was a big deal. In the second term, that was a big deal. He won the sort of, like, you know, lifetime loyalty of uh, a good chunk of the LGBTQ community, at least, like, that activist leaders um, for <laughs> forcing Obama's hand on that. So it has been a remarkable pace of change. On the other hand, you know, you look at, okay, you got 12 Republicans. They're able to get it through. That is extraordinary. On the other hand, you're like, what are you other people doing? Because you're now out of step with your own base on this issue. And that's a testament to the power that the uh, religious, organized religious right still has within the Republican Party. And so it'll be interesting to see if this ends up being a kind of a litmus test issue going forward in terms of primaries, or do they just kind of like realize they're on losing ground here once again and drop it and move on? Yeah, I, I really don't know uh, how it will go. I think, for, like I said, the only person who politically it would make sense for was Ted Cruz because he is the bastion of the evangelicals in the Republican primary or yeah. was um, at that time. You know, if what do you he, think about Rubio's positioning on this? Hey, I don't know. You know, that's an interesting one. I mean, he's he is clearly, devout Catholic, so like he's clearly well. I mean, but his excuse was just like, "Oh, this is a waste of time," which right. was a stupid. But we talked about that here. Yeah, like, but yeah, but when you have to vote, like, how are you going to vote? That's why I actually found it interesting. What they're all saying, and again, I don't actually know if this is true or not. Um, mm -hmm. What they're saying is that there's not enough protections for like Catholic charities, and that inst it institutes like some sort of legal regime under which like uh, Catholic charities and other Christian organizations could be sued. Maybe that's possible. Uh, I did see Senator Romney and the other Republicans who did vote for it say that there are concerns about that because there were some initial ones that weren't getting they, 60. They got modifications right. to the bill to reflect whatever their religious liberty concerns Right, exactly. Were. So I don't know you know, what their exact concern is or not. I think it's one of those where maybe they just voted how they believe and don't believe that they'll pay any cost because he also just won re-election and he's going to be in the Senate for the next six years and he won by 20 points. So. I think I read it more as yeah. apparently there was news he's like putting out a book and it looks like he may also be thinking about being like number, you know, twenty-four. Everybody, <laughs> give it up. Republican thing Please. is running for president. Do us a favor. Um, so anyway, I read it more as he's concerned that it could be a vulnerability in a Republican primary, which it may well be. Very it possible. May well be. Very possible. Yes. All right. Final one. Let's go to Trump. This is a hilarious story. So this is an NBC News article, which uh, forgive the source, but this journalist did a good job. Mark Caputo, he previously worked over Politico, I followed him for a long time. He reconstructed the Trump, Kanye, Fuentes, Milo dinner by just talking, imagine this, to Nick Fuentes and to Milo and to Kanye about what happened. Put this up there on the screen. Mark says it's the inside story of the Trump's <laughs> explosive dinner with Ye and with Nick Fuentes. But one of the things that he points is that effectively the entire dinner was choreographed and stage managed by Milo. And 
Milo has long felt that Trump uh, threw him under the bus and uh, for various reasons has beefs and uh, grievances with Milo. He effectively tricked a 2016 former Trump operative to drive the three of them from the airport to Mar-a-Lago as some sort of quasi-advisor and orchestrated the dinner in broad public view between Nick Fuentes and with Kanye, knowing Crystal that it was going to leak, the dinner was going to leak, and did so specifically to actually wound um, to wound the Trump campaign. So it does seem to be that there were several useful idiots through that, throughout this entire process, of which Milo himself appears to have known exactly what was gonna happen, got Fuentes at the dinner, brought Fuentes with Kanye, then using some Trump operatives that he knew, getting them all into Mar-a-Lago, forcing the dinner in itself, and then getting Fuentes there, also having the dinner in public view, knowing that the dinner uh, the dinner guests themselves were going to leak, yeah. all as part of a process to damage Trump, which just shows you uh, that's how easy Trump is to uh, to fool, I buy which is con- hilarious. I buy the conspiracy. Oh, I buy it too. Yeah. I absolutely buy it. Yeah, yeah. it seems like, I mean, not that I know Milo, right. or, like have really followed him even that closely, but it seems like the sort of uh, devious and seem, underhanded plot that he might be able to pull it off. It doesn't seem that hard to pull off. Right. I, I mean, it wasn't. And yeah. this is this is not to let Trump off right. the hook here because ultimately it relied on Trump taking a look at this group and being like, right. yes, I want to have dinner with you. And yes, I want to have dinner. Apparently he intentionally sat them in like a very prominent <laughs> place because he was very proud to be there right. with Kanye and thought that it'd be fun for the guests of Mar-a-Lago to see Kanye there. And so, yeah, there's this kind of like, I mean, it's it's interesting to, who knows how accurate this reporting ultimately is because it's based on the account of like, you know. Well, see, kind of the three, three people involved. Very, I know, yeah. but they're very untrustworthy people, right? right? So yeah. you can't really take their word for it. But anyway, um, there's this sort of fateful moment where they're standing there and the former Trump aide lady is like, Mr. President, I understand you were supposed to have dinner, just you and um, Mr. West. You know, we're happy to go over mm-hmm. to the bar and, like, hang out until you guys are done. And he's like, well, I'll let, I'll let Kanye decide what he wants to do. And Kanye's like, let's all he's eat. He's like, let's all eat Let's together. all eat. So they all sit down and ultimately um, eat. So it looks like he was... Looks like he may have been set up here, but he also walked right into the trap. They exploited exactly his, like, weaknesses for attention and flattery and carelessness and all that stuff. And yeah, I just thought right in there. it was funny to—because this shows the other angle of it. Like, outside of the outrage about the dinner and all that, just how easy it was to play. And also, you know, Milo's maliciousness <laughs> Uh, orchestrating this entire thing. Apparently I haven't seen anybody been, really talk about it. Apparently he's been saying for a while that he wanted to get revenge on yes. Trump. You know, um, we didn't cover it here, but I'm sure you guys saw like the whole Tim Pool has right. the three of them on and then within like 10 minutes, Kanye gets up, storms down, the slightest bit of pushback on his anti-Semitic nonsense. They, in the after discussion, were mm-hmm. talk, were sort of floating this. And I didn't really know what they were referring to, but I think Tim said something about, like, Milo had said that he uh, wanted to get re- revenge on Trump. So they kind of had it in mind that maybe this was what ultimately unfolded. So Yeah, what a weird situation. Okay, let's move on to SBF. We had to a- add this in later on in the show after it was all <laughs> happening last night. An extraordinary interview. One hour, SBF, possible criminal, sitting down against the advice of his own lawyers, as he own admitted, uh, during that interview, 
in which he was faced with probing and very difficult questions. I want to say props to Andrew Ross Sorkin. I actually didn't think he did a fantastic he job did a throughout very this. Good job. SBF is going to have some real problems should he ever uh, go on trial, either in a civil or a criminal uh, setting, because he put himself in some re- in, in a timeline denying specific knowledge of certain things. But my personal favorite moment came near the beginning. I watched the entire thing. When Andrew Ross Sorkin <laughs> reads him a letter from somebody who lost their life savings on FTX. And SBF, all he can really say is, yeah, uh, I guess I'm sorry that happened. On top of uh, denying that he ever committed any criminal fraud, let's take a listen. One of the the letters I got, uh, I want to read to you, Sam, um, because it's from a gentleman who said that he lost his life savings. Um, And the subject line is, Sam Bankman-Fried stole $2 million from me. Says, Andrew, can you please ask SBF why he decided to steal my life savings and the $10 billion more from customers to give to his hedge fund, Alameda? Please ask him if he thinks thinks what happened was fraud. These are the kinds of letters that I've been getting repeatedly over the past several days. What do you tell this this man? Yeah, Um, I mean, I'm deeply sorry about what happened. Super sorry. Sorry. Oopsie, I stole billions of dollars. My bad. The rest of the interview is also nuts on several levels. At one point, he's like offering financial advice about how and what to know which crypto exchange is a fraud. He also uh, basically downplays any chance that he had any criminal liability. But one of the ones that actually bothered me the most is whenever he was asked about his own criminal liability. And he was basically saying that he wasn't thinking about that because all he wants to do is help right now. Uh, He's really trying to cast himself. We've had enough of your help. Thank you. He's trying to cast himself as a sort of hero figure. So we have some of that that our producers cut. Let's take a listen. How concerned are you about criminal liability at this point? So I don't think that, I mean, obviously, I don't don't personally think that I have, uh, you know, but I I think the real answer is that's not, it sounds weird to say, but but I think the real answer is that's not what I'm focusing on. Um, It's, uh, there's going to be a time and a place for me to sort of think about myself and my own future, but I don't think this is it. Like, right now, I mean, look, I've had a bad month. Um, This has not been any fun for me, but that's not what matters here. Like, what matters here is the millions of customers. What matters here is all the stakeholders in FTX uh, who who got hurt. Given what you know about compliance or the lack of it in this business, in this industry, I think there are a lot of people who are holding crypto today, perhaps on exchanges like Binance and other places. Yep. Yep. What should they think, given what you do know, and to the extent that you right. can tell us the truth about what you know? What should they think? And, and I, I presume you're asking what should they think about the safety of their assets going forward. And Correct. Yeah. So, look, I, don't, um, I obviously don't know exactly what's going on at other exchanges. Um, I can tell you what I would think as a customer, you know, uh, if, I, if I were a customer here, which is um, look for the things that I wish FTX had been able to supply. Um, things like you know, proof of reserves is helpful. Um, look for as rigorous of that as you can. Look for regulatory reporting, right? You look at what the JFSA had in place in Japan. Um, you look at what FTX US derivatives had with, you know, uh, sort of frequent reporting to regulators of exactly what, you know, customer assets, balances, liabilities, distributions are. 
I feel like I was going to lose my mind whenever he's like telling people where and what they should be with their money. But on the criminal liability question, just again, he's trying to set himself up like some hero. I actually thought Chris. So Hedges, selfless. I know. He's like, I'm, just uh, I'm not even worried about myself. Yeah. I just want to help. If that's true, yeah, get on a plane. Get on a plane and come to the United States and we'll see how uh, true that is. Mm. I, look, I, the whole thing, it's extraordinary. I encourage you all to go watch it. Yes. Uh, I think that where Andrew Ross Sorkin really nailed him is that on November 7th, Sam sent out a tweet basically saying that they were going to be cover uh, be able to cover all customer withdrawals, eventually deleted it, and per his own mind and thinking, he claimed to know sometime on November 7th that the entire thing was going to crash. Yes. So, look, we'll see. He eventually deleted that tweet, too. That was the the timeline right. that may be very, uh, may come back to bite him in right. terms of any criminal liability. I mean, listen, the guy is in some deep, deep issues here. And he claimed not to know all sorts of things. Oh, he, he didn't right. really know what was going on. He right. was unaware of how exposed they were. He didn't know what a big position they had, all of this stuff. I mean, it was like, come on. It, to the point that there was reporting that Andrew Ross Sorkin asked him about that he had, they had paid, FTX had paid for like a beach house for his mm-hmm. parents. And he's like, I, I don't really know. How, Who knows? how could like, you not know? Come on, yeah. dude. Obviously, you know if your parents have a beach house in the country also, where you, you know, are it was also. Like $50 million. Right. It wasn't just some standard. It wasn't just like house. a little, yeah. you know, a little shack on yeah. the beach <laughs> in the Bahamas. This is, yeah, $50 million. Oh, and you don't have any idea what's going on there? Come on. I mean, there were so many moments here, too, where he was just sort of like backed into a corner and just trying to con man his way out of it. Like, that's really what it seemed like. The go-to move was just to say, I don't know. I didn't know what was going on, you know, to try to appear like selfless and noble. Mm -hmm. And as to why he even did this interview, which was really ill-advised, his lawyers are clearly correct about that. This is a guy who clearly is used to like talking his way on anything I think you're and right. thinks, you know, he's classic narcissist, thinks he can get in front of a camera and charm everyone and make them think like, oh, it's just all a big misunderstanding and just a like unfortunate circumstance. And he's really sorry. Bunch of nonsense. Bunch of nonsense. It was pretty remarkable. And he'd say things like, like, oh, I wish we'd had that person who was like just focused on mm-hmm. the risk and the downside. Like, it's that like was you. You were yeah. supposed to be that person. <laughs> He's like, I just wish we had that guy. You were supposed to be that guy. And um, you know, you get Andrew Ross Sorkin asked him about, okay, what's your what do you think your future is? Like, future's a prison cell, dude. That's what you're staring down right now. Yeah, I mean, uh, and I think he's still possible. in denial about that. I think you might be right. I mean, look, uh, I was actually talking with some of my friends this morning. Wire fraud is like the equivalent of mail fraud. It's one of those things where if the feds want to get you on wire fraud, they pretty easily can. Uh, they just got Elizabeth Holmes on seven counts of wire fraud at trial. So all they really have to prove is that he uh, committed fraud in at least like one instance, and they've got you, uh, or at least knew about something. He caught caught himself in a lot of problems about his knowledge of Alameda, the sister hedge fund. And also, what I think is going to really complicate things is we shouldn't forget, he enriched himself extraordinarily. He was pulling hundreds of millions of dollars out of the company. He claimed in that interview to what, have only $100,000? Yeah, um, one credit said I have one credit card that's still working. Right, you said he has one... uh, Okay, uh, we'll see. Um, I've got a lot of questions also about that. To me, also, how much money does your parents have? Because clearly you were transferring it over to them mm, too. Yeah, to me, the most telling part was at the end, Andrew Russ Orkin asked him, like, are you telling, did you tell the truth? Yeah. And he can't give a direct answer. Well, he's like, to he's the best like, of my knowledge. To the best of my knowledge as I know it, yes. Yeah, exactly. But it's like, exactly. 
if you were really being upfront here, a simple yes or no would do. And he gets confronted too with like those uh, text messages he yes. exchanged with the Vox reporter yes. and has a real hard time wiggling out of that one too. He's like, well, you know, I was just talking about what I was doing when I was in promotional mode mm. for FTX. It's like classic, Look, classic con man. There's still a lot to say. I actually saw an interesting analysis from a guy who ran, uh, who covered Madoff. And he was like, you know, there are so many similarities. Like Madoff, he was mm. a genius up until the end. And really mm. what doomed the two of them is they thought they could trade their way out of it. They're like, well, we can do this or, you know, get this bailout and maybe we can make a trade. And based on that trade, like we could be able to cover all of it, which it's it's a classic like narcissist, like Ponzi right. scheme mindset. Well, I also want people yeah. to understand that the ball bounces a little bit differently and this guy continues to be, oh, I know. you know, yeah. billionaire, esteemed, globally renowned figure holding his crypto conference with, you know, a Tony Blair and Bill Clinton there and all of of this stuff. So, I mean, the line between you're a criminal and you're in prison and you're a world-renowned mm -hmm. philanthropist, very narrow, ultimately. Then. All right, Crystal, what are you taking a look at? Well, are America's cities in a deadly doom loop? That is the provocative question asked in a New York Times op-ed by Thomas Edsel, and it's based on a groundbreaking analysis of research that was compiled by the National Bureau of Economic Research. So the theory here, it's pretty simple to understand. After years of an urban renaissance in which superstar cities generated high-paying jobs, which attracted affluent professionals, which attracted appealing amenities, which attracted even more affluent professionals in a virtuous circle, the pandemic triggered a spiral in the opposite direction. Those affluent professionals were sent home to work remotely, and many with the means to do so fled the confines of their city dwellings entirely. Temporary rentals in the suburbs turned into home purchases in the suburbs. Temporary remote work schedules turned into permanent remote work schedules, or more often hybrid work schedules, which still ease the burden of a long suburban commute. So those affluent professionals fleeing to the burbs took their tax revenue and their shopping dollars with them and tanked the commercial real estate market while they were at it. Let me give you a little bit of data to back all of this up. First, on the big migration, according to that National Bureau of Economic Research working paper, Manhattan alone lost 200,000 households since the pandemic began. Chicago lost 75,000, San Francisco lost 67,000, and DC lost 33,000, just to give a few examples here. A wide variety of small cities and suburbs, they were the beneficiaries of these net migration flows as places like Naples, Florida, Sun City, Arizona, and Collin, Texas gained population. Now, as far as the permanence of remote work goes, according to the most recent data from September of this year, only 9% of Manhattan office workers are actually at their desk five days a week now. Most of these workers are actually on a hybrid schedule, and on any given day, only 49% of workers are in the office. This migration and new work patterns has had a predictable impact on retail and on restaurants. The restaurant sector in New York City has lost 78 thousand workers. As of August, restaurant visits are down 37% in New York City and 41% in San Francisco as compared to the pre-pandemic period. At the same time, as affluent professionals have fled to their home Zoom offices in their new suburban homes, crime and visible homelessness in cities has spiked, lowering the quality of urban life. Now, this is a challenging issue that politicians of all ideologies are really struggling to handle without the social safety nets that other developed nations can rely on. It also bodes poorly for the future, because as ill-equipped as major cities are to deal with these issues today, their situation is only going to become tougher as pandemic programs dry up, as the new infusion from the Inflation Reduction Act goes away, and as tax revenue continues to decline. And that brings us to the aforementioned doom loop. 
the affluent professionals move out, the tax revenue drops, the amenities and quality of city government declines, causing more affluent professionals to move out. A cycle of decline and decay sets in, much like what we saw in the 70s and the 80s, until it can be reversed by some new, as of yet unseen, social phenomenon. Now, fears of this death spiral can be seen in the policy choices of New York Mayor Eric Adams. You see an attempt to arrest the decline in urban quality of living in his decision to abruptly clear out homeless camps and to instruct police to take people who appear too mentally ill to care for themselves to mental hospitals for involuntary commitment. You see an attempt to staunch the bleeding of the commercial real estate sector, retail, and restaurant industries in his push to force workers back into the office. Just take a listen to a presser that he gave last January. There's a large number of businesses. You should speak to some of the businesses that the employees are saying, we no longer want to come back in the office. Now, that's fine if we weren't connected. But as I said earlier, that accountant, I need him to go to the cleaners. I need him to go down to Dunkin' Donuts. I need him to go to the restaurant. I need him, need him to bring in a business traveler. And if we say that, well, I don't have to come in. I'm still getting my salary then you are not helping those New Yorkers that need us to come in. So I want I want my businesses in this city to come up with a closer deadline and say we're going to start placing our toe back in the water, come in for two days, to, for three days, and then let's get the city back up and operating. Whatever you think of these policy choices, and by the way, we're talking to Ross Barkin about some of this today, they are unlikely to halt a mass social phenomenon which is already well underway. Just consider the attempts to get workers back in the office as one example. White-collar workers tell surveyors they are willing to take a pay cut to keep their remote and hybrid work schedules. So if their company says, get your butt back in the office, they will likely do what a large chunk of the Twitter workforce did when Elon made similar demands of them and say, okay, good luck, I'm out of here. Now, the national impact of all of this is going to be far-reaching, and it's going to be very unpredictable. One element is already showing up, though, in our politics. One of the fascinating aspects of these midterms was how Republicans, seemingly in one cycle, went from having a structural advantage in the House to a structural disadvantage. So let me explain this. It used to be that thanks to gerrymandering and heavy concentration of Democratic voters in cities, Republicans could actually win control of the House even as they lost the overall popular vote for the House. That dynamic has now flipped. Republicans actually did win the popular vote for the House by about two points, but they underperformed in terms of the net number of seats that they ultimately picked up. Decision Desk HQ has an analysis of the, this dynamic, which has everything to do with the COVID migration trends of blue voters out to the suburbs, along with Democrats increasing dominance with this group. So essentially, they show that most of the nation's swing districts are in the suburbs. So as Democratic city dwellers have moved out to the burbs, they have brought Democratic political power to the most important districts in the entire country. At the same time, Republicans are gaining ground in two areas that really don't help them all that much. They are racking up giant margins in rural areas. But look, if you go from winning by 60 points to winning by 70 points in a deep red district, that really doesn't help you all that much in terms of the House. And they are actually gaining ground in the urban areas with black and brown working class voters. But 
these areas are already so blue, it doesn't really help them to go from losing by 40 to now only losing by 30. So you are now facing a political dynamic where the Senate is structurally tilted towards the Republicans, while the House is increasingly structurally tilted towards the Democrats. Now, this is just one example of the massive national changes we are in for as our migration, work, and shopping habits all shift. The housing and rental markets are seeing massive swings and shifts as well, and an era of incredible urban affluence and inequality may be coming to a close. And uh, I thought it was really interesting to think about, Sagar. I mean, we've sort of taken for granted— And if you want to hear my reaction to Crystal's monologue, become a premium subscriber today at BreakingPoints.com. All right, Saga, what are you looking at? Well, I know it can seem obnoxious and preachy when someone gets into health and fitness and never shuts up about it. (laughs) So I genuinely do try not to inundate everyone here. That said, it is probably my number one primary interest outside of work that I do here on the show. I follow the world very closely. Just try and stay up to date as possible on the latest scientific consensus around hormones, hypertrophy, sleep quality, diet, exercise, how to live a full, energetic, and a healthy life. So like anyone in 2022, what do you do? You follow a bunch of podcasters, you have influencers, you have others to figure out how can you become healthy? And of course, inevitably, like millions of other men interested in improving their lives, you eventually come across the Liver King. If you're not familiar with Liver King, it's almost comical to try and describe to you who he is. (laughs) He is a freakishly looking ripped man with a beard who eats raw meat, especially liver, hence the name. He performs outlandish stunts on TikTok, on Instagram, and preaches a doctrine which we'll get to. If you don't know who he is, here's just a small taste. All right, let's see what this is. <laughs> this one tastes like strength, courage, mastery, honor. There's some king shit right here. This is liver because liver is king. Yeah, no, it's basically <laughs> You're thinking, okay, Sagar, so what? Why should we care? Well, Liver King, to me, for more than a year, has not represented everything that is wrong with our current fitness influencer culture, which is ensnaring millions of vulnerable young men, including and especially teenagers, who are genuinely seeking to better their lives but are taken in by outright charlatans. If you listen to the Liver King beyond his outlandish short TikToks or Instagram videos, his philosophy is actually very simple. He teaches something called the nine ancestral tenets, sleep, eat, move, shield, connect, cold, sun, fight, and bond. Now, there's nothing wrong with any of these, per se, but the problem comes in the preaching. Per Liver King and the copious amounts of raw liver that he eats, he has preached his dogmatic dietary view that if one desires a top-tier physique like he has, you should eat only raw meat, no vegetables. You should live exactly as he does. Of course, to live as he does, it's not just about the meat— It's about buying his supplements, Mm. which he hawks relentlessly, including desiccated animal organ supplements, protein shakes, and a hell of a lot more. This in and of itself, again, is not bad. Much of the Liver King message I actually agree with completely. You should avoid processed foods. You should prioritize your sleep. You should go for a walk. You should spend a lot of time in the sun. You should desire to look and to feel better. The issue has now been, though, over the last year, that Liver King tells millions of people that all you need to do is take his supplements and eat and live as he does, and you too can look exactly like him when it doesn't take a genius to see that he is using a copious amounts of PEDs. Now, I don't even have a problem with steroid use. It doesn't negate his obvious rigid dietary adherence or his hard work. It still takes a lot of work to grow that type of muscle. The problem is his denial. 
over and over and over again. He denies taking steroids, reiterating that you can look exactly like he does if you just buy his supplements. It's not an exaggeration to say he has lied about this now repeatedly. Let's take a listen to a montage which was put together from Derek from More Plates, More Dates, whose broader expose of him that we will spend some time on later in the show. Let's get to it. I'm not gonna do this stuff. What's this, what stuff? The, the ass full of steroids that he talks about. You've never taken steroids. Never taken steroids. I've never done PEDs other than prioritize, execute, and dominate in life. A bunch of primals keep asking if Liver King is natty or not. I decided to really face this head on and show you my stack. I stack liver and bone marrow every day. I stack the sun and the earth every day. I stack blood burning workouts twice a day, every day. And if you stack the nine ancestral tenants, you too can express your most dominant form. And by, by the way, this was my cameraman idea, so tip of the hat to him. I don't even know where to get this stuff, but I will tell you this, this is filled with maple syrup. There's nothing better than that. Liver King out. It's unambiguous, again and again and again. He says he doesn't take steroids, despite his freakish physique. He says all people need to do is follow the nine ancestral tenants and take his supplements, and they can look like he. Well, as now leaked emails to Derek for More Place, More Dates show, that is all a complete farce. Liver King, by his own admission, is taking a drug stack that puts professional bodybuilders to shame, including steroids, testosterone, IGF-1, peptides, and several other substances, spending some $12,000 a month on PEDs. It's not a surprise. Look at the guy. But I come back to the lies he has told now over and over again on some of the biggest podcasts in the world, included but not limited to Logan Paul's show, Barstool, so many self-help and fitness podcasts, all of which reveled in his antics and his diet for views, shock value, while promoting a lie which was making him millions of dollars. By his own admission, he made $100 million last year on various supplement brands, making him perhaps one of the single most influential people in the entire world of online health and fitness. All of it was built on a deceitful lie. I wanna say again why I care. Because if Liver King had been around, honestly, I don't, if he had been honest, I really don't think it would have hurt him. He could have said he lives this way, and yes, he also takes PEDs to enhance his experience. Take the supplements, you can get a dose of what the Liver King does. Very few would have held it against him. He can do whatever he wants, after all. His message still would have resonated, but it's the lies, the denials pushed specifically to sell his supplements. That's what bothers me. I'm a guy a decade ago, I might have fallen for it. I was fat, I was pudgy, I was inactive, I was miserable. Like all Americans, I want an easy way out. I didn't want to count my macros or drag my ass to the gym to pursue progressive overload and get results over time. I wanted instant gratification. That's something a lot of people want. I probably would have bought some Liver King supplements if I was 18 years old today. Clearly, a lot of people were doing it too. Maybe that's an indictment of me. But it's also a symptom of how deep the problem is. A lot of people today, especially men, are miserable. They're more obese than ever. Testosterone levels are dropping precipitously from where they were just 30 years ago. Masculinity itself has been relegated to discussions on YouTube, discarded by mainstream culture as something to be actively discouraged. In that vacuum arises the liver king. He's a liar, but he's a mirror to our own broader failings. In a society where proper discussion about health, fitness, masculinity, diet, and more are not properly celebrated, charlatans like him arise to fill the vacuum. It is not a surprise that he became popular when he did, and that he was venerated, especially today, by teenage boys who feel completely lost in our society, and who have not yet learned the rewards of discipline and hard work that can give you in the long term in life. 
In my opinion, we should look at the Liver King story as a very cautionary tale. We can look at it as an opportunity to have more conversations, at least on a mass level, about what it actually means to be healthy and how to get there and what can real someone can realistically look like. What does it mean to be a man? As Richard Reeves laid out so eloquently on our show before, boys and men are in crisis across America and in the broader West. Their attraction to people like Liver King is a cry for help that we must and need to fill. Otherwise, there will just be another person to take his place. So, I mean, I went a little meta there, but he's one of the most popular people. And if you want to hear my reaction to Sagar's monologue, become a premium subscriber today at BreakingPoints.com. Hey guys, we're having some technical difficulties. We're gonna connect with Ross and we'll post the interview later on um, on the channel. Just wanna say thank you once again to all of our premium subscribers and others. And also don't forget, live show, we are coming. New York, Boston, put them up there on the screen there, people. We've got uh, December 6th and December 7th. It's gonna be a fantastic show. As you said, it's also probably the last chance to see us for quite a while, just the way that the calendar and all of that is shaking out. So if you're on the fence, uh, this is one reason to come. It's gonna be a fun uh, holiday environment. We're gonna have a great time with with all of our friends, and we hope to see you there. Maybe we'll humiliate tickets. ourselves by like singing Christmas carols or something. Oh God, yeah. You won't know until yeah, you show yeah, up. Yeah. You well, don't I know. I can assure you that is not ever getting out <laughs> to the rest of the world. But for the people on stage, maybe. maybe. We'll all right, love y'all. Enjoy Counterpoints tomorrow. We'll see you next week. See you later. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview, Great Falls, offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. With the best all-inclusive vacation deals to Mexico and the Caribbean, booking your getaway with cheap Caribbean vacations means you have more freedom. Whether you want to enjoy snorkeling, endless margaritas, and more, cheap Caribbean vacations has your deal for that. Plan and book the exact getaway you want at exactly the right price for you by using our exclusive budget beach finder or find a featured all-inclusive package to reu hotels and resorts and do your deal at CheapCaribbean.com.